the end of time, I, I want us to think about two different communities. And I want us to do a little brain exercise together. And I want us to imagine one community that we would never want to live in. And I want us to imagine another community that sounds like utopia, the best place imaginable that we could live in. And, and I want us to describe these communities by the type of people in them. What are some of the characteristics? What is some of the culture created in that community? So let's think of all, first of all, how would you define a community that you would never want to live in? What type of people are there? What type of culture is there? Pardon? Different, yeah. Well, everyone's sort of different, so that might cause complications, you're right. Yeah, no love, a lot of violence. Poverty, which means no one's caring for each other. Selfishness. <laughs> yeah, Chico, First Nations Reserve. There's some good reserves out there too, Chicota, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, dishonesty, lies. Pardon? Vanity, yeah. Sorry? Everyone's grumbling and complaining. No one's happy, right? Yeah, immoral. No sense of morality. Pardon? Yeah, hopelessness and despair. There's no point to living. No one has a purpose in their life. So we could talk a lot about that, right? So who wants to live in that type of community? None of us, right? Now let's go to the other side of the equation. What is a community that we would love to live in? What type of people are there? Yeah, caring. Yeah, yeah, you just say heaven itself, the presence of God there. Yeah, good, good cooks. So good food, creativity. And there's George right there as a good cook. <laughs> yeah, thankful. In other words, not just have good food, but thankful and joyful. Pardon? Yeah, good musicians, which means there's art, there's beauty, there's music, there's celebration. Yeah, families that are connected and supporting and loving each other, not broken families, not torn apart by conflict or drama. In what way? How would you describe it? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, people working together, there's a commonality, a common goal, there's a support. <laughs> George is trying to, yeah, your wife just everything about Ruth. <laughs> just all the characteristics of Ruth put in a community. It's the best community. I can probably support that too, George. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's interesting as, as we compare these two communities because the, the obvious answer of where we would want to live is in this community, right? And the type of people we'd want to be around and the type of people we'd want to associate with and the type of people we'd even want to be 
is this type of community. Amen? But what's the hard part? Even though we want this, even though we desire this as humans, do we actually get to experience that in fullness? No. And even for us who, who strive for that community, who even try to base our lives around that community, even long to create that community, there's still a struggle there, isn't there? And I, I bring that up because what Colossians is going to do for us today is really frame these two paradigms of two different types of people and two different types of behaviors and identifications. And, and what I want us to realize is that what Paul is calling us to this morning in Colossians 3 is possible. In other words, what God has called us to do and to be, He has also given us the power to achieve. Amen? God doesn't call us to be or do something that he hasn't given us the ability to do. So the, so the question is, well, why do we struggle to actually create a community like this? And so let me put these two paradigms before us. I'm going to read two sections of Scripture, then we're going to walk through and analyze. But here's how Paul would define the first community, the community that no one wants to live in. And he starts in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In other words, God is against all these things. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And we're going to deal with a little bit of the other passages later. So now... Compare this with what he says next in verses 12 to 17. Listen to this description. Then Paul says, well, put on then, in other words, be this kind of person, be this type of community, be this type of culture. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, this is what we put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns. So Peter, you got onto this one already, right? <laughs> and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen? It's a pretty beautiful description, isn't it? It's a pretty beautiful description of what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be a Christian community, what it means to be the church, and yet the struggle still remains that not only do we struggle to see this on a corporate level, and a community level, but we also struggle to see it as individuals. Who here struggles with the old self sometimes? Who struggles on putting on the new self? And so the, the, the struggle we face is we have the desire to change at times. We, we want to change, but we, we don't necessarily know the pathway forward. And, and Paul begins to answer that question of how do we actually change? How do we actually be the people that we often desire to be? And this is where verses 1 to 4 begins to set a premise for us. Paul says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, what are we supposed to do? Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things where? That are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life, and this is a wild thing to think about, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen? So that brings us back to that in Christ theme that's so consistent throughout Colossians. But we're going to touch that on a little bit. But what I want us to do now is I want us to begin to answer the question, if we want to change, what are some of the things that Paul hints at us to do? What does he hint at us for to believe? What does he hint at us to know? And so I want to break this down into just four basic premises. And I think the first thing that Paul gives us indication to is if we want to change, our view of self must change. In other words, we now have an identity when we follow Jesus that our identity is now transformed. So what's interesting, if our life is hidden with Christ in God, if we are in Christ and we belong to the kingdom of God, what does that mean for us? It actually means that we already belong to the kingdom we long for, amen? Amen. We already belong to the kingdom of justice and love and mercy and beauty and grace and forgiveness. We belong to that community. And one of the reasons Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossians is that he wants the church to realize of what is already true of them in Christ. And what Paul is telling us, especially in verses 1 to 4, is because Jesus and his people are so closely connected, because we are in Christ, we are one another with Christ, that what is true of Jesus is true of us. Amen? Do you realize how profound that is? That what is true of Jesus is true of us? Now the problem we face is it often doesn't feel like it. And learning to believe what doesn't often feel true is part of being a Christian. This is what 
understanding faith is all about. So how must our view of self must change? Well, the Bible tells us that when we are in Christ, when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness, the perfection, the holiness of his Son. Which means that how we often define ourselves as, as flawed and broken, which is true, we often define ourselves by our guilt and our shame and our mistakes. But what Paul is telling us is that when we are in Christ, everything has been transformed. We are entirely new creations. And so C.S. Lewis had this beautiful analogy that when we think of following Jesus and becoming a Christian, sometimes we think that, oh, God is just going to come into my house and my life and simply do a renovation. And so he might paint a few walls, he might knock down a few walls, he might rearrange the furniture, um, but that's about all God is going to do. And C.S. Lewis says, no, God completely destroys the house of your life and makes something brand new. Because we have to. Because Paul says our, our old life, who we are, can't simply have a renovation. It needs a recreation. See, our old selves were like a house that couldn't be simply refinished. Our old lives were like a car that couldn't simply be repaired. Our old life is like a house that couldn't be fixed. Our old life is all the things that we think we can do on our own, but in reality, God has to completely come and transform everything. And so Paul says that we have actually died to that former self and that we have been raised with Christ. In other words, God hasn't come simply to renovate our life. God hasn't come to simply change a few things. God has come to completely remake us and give us a new life. We are, as Paul says, new creation. That is our identity. That is how we must view ourselves. And so this is why in verse 9 and 10 here, it's pretty wild what Paul says. Because he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, Paul is deliberately saying, you are a new creation. This is your new identity. This is what now defines you. And so, again, when we go back to this question of, who longs for change in their life? How is this actually accomplished? Everybody makes changes, but Paul is saying if you put off certain beliefs, if you put off certain behavior, if you put off your, your ways of viewing yourself, then you realize that the shifts and behaviors and patterns and habits that you've done is completely changing you. Your practices have changed so much you could almost say that you're a new person. And Paul is saying you have put on the old self and you have put on the new self, which means you have an entirely new identity in Christ. The change of the gospel is so radical, you literally become another person. Is that hopeful? I think it's incredibly hopeful because so many of us fail time and time again trying to change. 
And yet the first point of changing is to realize who we are in our identity in Christ. Another thing that Paul brings up here is that if you want to change, then your desires must change. And he's talking about if you are now a kingdom citizen, if you are part of this community and calling and identity of this is the person you're kind supposed to be and called to be, there are certain behaviors and habits that must be put off. There's things of this world that do not match with the kingdom of God. And so we already mentioned a bunch of them. All the things of this community... If you were to take any of the gossip or slander or hatred or selfishness and put any of that into this community, would it not entirely destroy it? It would destroy everything. And so what Paul says is we need to put to death all those things. We need to make sure we eradicate them from our own lives and our community because none of those things match this culture. None of those things match this identity. And so live out of your identity. And so think of it this way. He uses this language of putting off and putting on this language of clothes. What are some occasions that you can think of where some clothes don't match the occasion? What would you wear to a wedding that might not match the occasion? A bathing suit? A bathing suit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What might you wear up in the mountains that don't match the occasion? Probably a bathing suit again. <laughs> but, but we realize when there's, there's a culture and an expectation, there's certain things that just don't fit. They don't make sense. They don't belong there. And, and so this is what Paul is using with this language of identity, this language of even how we clothe ourselves, how we view ourselves, because it doesn't match. And so Paul says, you have to change not only your identity, the way you see yourself, but you also must realize that your heart's and mind's desires must match the kingdom of God. And so he says, put to death what belongs in your earthly nature. And he gives us this long list of character traits. What are some of the things he lists off here? He says, anger and wrath and malice and slander and covetedness and immorality and sexual immorality and evil desires and all these things. And he's, he's basically saying, you must put off all these behaviors. And what he's saying there is really, you'd love to be free from them, don't you? I mean, who would love to be free from all these things? Who would love to be free from anger outbursts? Who would love to be free from lustful thoughts? Who would love to be free from slander and obscene talk? All these things that we know brings destruction. We say, I'd love to be free from those things. And Paul says, you haven't realized how serious you need to take this. Because he says in verse 5, what is the language to get rid of these things? He says, put to death. Pretty intense language, is it not? Put to death. And what we see Paul saying we need to put to death is these behaviors that are, are destructive. These behaviors that break down relationship, these behaviors that bring harm to others. And it's, it's interesting, the two main areas of behaviors he looks at here is basically sex and speech. 
Those are the two main categories. Now, if we think about it, those two categories deal with a lot of our lives, don't we? Doesn't it? We talk a lot and we, I won't say the other line, but you get where I'm going with that one, right? And that defines a lot of our lives. And Paul is saying both of these things cause serious damage. And it's interesting to me that Paul almost equates uh, the sins of speech almost as detrimental, if not equally detrimental, to the sins of sex. And I think we need to balance those things in the church. And the, the reason Paul cares so deeply about these major issues is because not just the individuals in their own battle to overcome temptation because of the culture that it creates in the community. And when you think about this, when you have um, this misplaced, uh, and again, these, these things, when you think about it, are, are good in and of themselves, right? Did God create speech for good? Yes, it's pretty wonderful to be able to communicate with speech, amen? Did God create sex for good? I thought I'd get a lot more amens on that, but you guys... <laughs> But those things are good. And so what, what Paul is saying then is what we've taken is these desires and we've misplaced them and we've actually overemphasized, we've overloved them, we've overworshipped them in a sense to the point where they come, become idols as he talks about. Where they become ultimate in our desires. Where we take something good that God has given us and make it ultimate. And when we think about the, the language of sex, when sex becomes ultimate in our culture, when sex becomes ultimate for us as individuals, what kind of sinful actions and evils does it produce? Rape. Taking advantage of someone. Yeah, lies and deceit. Pornography. Pardon? Pedophilia. Pedophilia. Unfaithfulness, adultery. Abuse. You see how wicked and evil that is? E even when speech, something that can be used for good and blessing... <laughs> Think of speech when it's used for evil intentions. What does evil speech produce? Pardon? Yeah, death. J James talks about how the tongue can create a forest fire and kill, right? And you can, you can look at different studies too, even emotional or uh, verbal abuse and mockery can lead to depression and suicide. Literally death. What else? Coercion. Gossip, which breaks down relationships. Credibility. Credibility, yeah, when you say something untrue. Hatred can be used to mock and to slander and to abuse. So when we think about these desires then, these things that are good that can so easily be turned for evil, we have to pay attention because of the damage. Now, it's interesting, uh, who here has seen the movie The Quiet Place? Anyone? A few of you? 
The Quiet Place is a, a fascinating movie, actually. It's a movie with, like, literally hardly any talking in it. And the reason why is this movie is about basically monsters or these evil entities that could hear you, but they couldn't see you. And so Sandra Bullock's in this movie, and she has like a blindfold. I, I forget why. I forget all the details. But basically, they have to be, or no, I'm thinking of the bird box now, the other one. Um, who's uh, the guy from The Office? What's his wife's name again? That's who's in it, right? Yeah, Emily Blunt. She's in it. And uh, so they have to be all quiet in the house. They can't make any noise because they can't be detected. And as soon as they make noise, these monsters hear them. And so when a monster comes after her, it's basically trying to escape. But as soon as she's loud, as soon as anyone else is loud, that monster is basically going to kill them. And she's ready to kill. I'm trying to remember the end of the first movie or the second one, but she's ready to kill. She has like a shotgun just waiting to kill that monster as soon as it shows up. But anyway, butchered that story. I thought it was fresher in my mind, but I haven't seen it for a long time. But anyway, I was thinking it's, I was going to compare it with this concept of sin then. Because this sin, this evil that we read about in verses 5 to 9 is sort of like that, isn't it? Where sin is always sort of lurking around. It, it acts like a monster. It's coming to devour. It's coming to destroy. It's coming to take away everything you love. And so we must be ready to protect ourselves from it, amen? Amen. You know, there's a, a few of the, the old Puritan writers, and I'm trying to remember which Puritan writer it was, but one of the quotes I read from the Puritans was, put sin to death, or it will put you to death. And I think that is so true. It destroys. It's what it does. And so our, our desires must change, and our desires must be transformed. And so... Paul then says, if, if that's the desires of the old self, if that's the life of the old self, then what you must do then, as this verse 12 says, is put on. Put on. This is what you're supposed to live for. So he says, put on as God's chosen ones. In other words, this is your identity. God has chosen you out of love and grace. God has made you holy and beloved because of who you are, because of your identity, this is what you must pursue. So he talks again about the compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and conflict resolution, all these things. And, and basically what he's saying here is this new self reflects the character of God. If you are in Christ, you should look like you're in Christ. Because this is what you were created for. This is what it means to be human. And so let me, let me just simply summarize. What does it mean to put on then? What does it mean to put on the very characteristics of God? Well, because of Jesus what has done for us. Because Jesus really is the definition of all these things, isn't he? 
I mean, Jesus is holy. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is kind. Jesus is humble. Jesus is meek. Jesus is patient. Jesus is forgiving. All these things are summarized in the very character of God. And because we are in Christ, not only do we get to experience those things, and Jesus treats us in that way, but because we are in Christ and our life and our identity is found in Him and because He is constantly pouring those things into us, our desires get to change and be poured out to others. Amen? And so this, this really becomes this language then of what God desires for His church. We need to be transformed in Him. Now, this is another key part. Because if you want to change, then what you love must change. Because if this is what it means to be in Christ, the only way that we're becoming in Christ is because God's grace and mercy and love for us that we now show by loving God. And if we love anything more than God, where does it place us? It places back into the categories of the first community. And if we love anything more than God, then it becomes, as, as Paul says, and this is really the language of where he says um, evil desire. Evil desire isn't just desire for evil things, but evil desire is overemphasis on desire. Desiring something more than God. And so if our behaviors must change, then the only way our behaviors can change is simply by our love being transformed. And here's really what Paul is getting at. Anyone heard the phrase, you are what you love? Right? This is exactly what Paul is saying here. You are what you love. And so he says, if, if you love Jesus, if you have been raised with Christ, here's the calling. If this is your identity, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like. And he says back in verse 1, he says, seek the things that are above. In other words, have an affection towards, have your heart move towards, allow your passions and desires and your love to be moved towards things that are above. And then he says, set your mind on things that are above. In other words, the greatest affection and passion and love in your life must be God. Because unless that is your ultimate love, everything else is going to get distorted. Everything else is going to be out of correlation. Everything else is going to be misworshipped. And so he says you need to change what you love. You have been raised with Christ. And it's not just a metaphor. It's, it's literally who we are in Christ. And so, so often we, we think of the question when we become a Christian, well, what makes you a Christian? And I remember there was a few times I've talked to people about, well, what is a Christian? How, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know if I'm becoming a Christian? And I remember a few people talked to me, it was mostly just behavior change. Well, if you get rid of your addictions, Micah, if you stop doing this, if you change this behavior, if... If you don't get in so much trouble at Bible college and they don't try and kick you out all the time, 
But is it just behavior change? No. It can't just be behavior change. Yes, our lives are transformed, but what makes us a Christian is the fact that our identity is now that we are in Christ, as Colossians says. And we are in Christ through faith in Him and love with Him. And so Paul has been reminded of all these beautiful things is that God sees us as he sees Christ. He looks at us as if we have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, raised to life with Christ because we have in a sense. And that's what a lot of baptism pictures and gives imagery to. And so it says when you have died with Christ, it now says God sees you as free from anything you've done wrong. As if you had died on the cross, but Jesus died in your place. There's no condemnation. And so the good news then, and, and the reason why our love and our affection can go so deeply to God is because the good news is, is not that we come to God and we prove ourselves and we show how righteous we are and we have all these good acts before God and earn His favor. That's what Kevin talked about last week. Does any of that work? No. It has nothing to do with behavior modification. When you think about it, the religious leaders, the Pharisees um, that were, were calling Jesus out and telling him all these things that he must be teaching, we realize that those were the people that Christ called out the most, the people who had everything together. But the good news is that we live for Christ. We find our freedom because of his love and acceptance. And so when our love from God is experienced, and Richard, you brought this up in your passage, we love, why? Because he first loved us. And so when we experience the love of God, when we allow it to wash over us, when we experience the gospel, then our love, our affections, our desires are transformed. And so that's the beauty of what Paul is teaching us. Now, here's another key thing. Here's another key thing that's, that's pretty interesting in this text. Now, I haven't read verse 11 yet, so let me read it for you. But it's, this, it's seemingly out of place. It's seemingly random here, but it's actually quite powerful. Because Paul has went through this whole description of what to put off, all these sinful practices, all these things you don't want to be associated with, all these things that are to be eradicated from the Christian community. And then he says, verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but what? But Christ is all and Christ is in all. What would have been interesting for the early church as they're gathering? They're completely multicultural. They're completely multi-demographic. They're completely from different economic statuses. And when you have a community like that, there's a lot of differences there, isn't there? 
There's a lot of spaces for conflict. There's a lot of spaces for things to, to create disunity, to create hatred, or to create even animosity towards each other. And this is quite staggering to read because Paul lists these type of people who normally wouldn't associate together at all. And that's the beauty of the church, isn't it? Amen? That Paul lists these people who wouldn't normally associate at all. And so we, we see this beautiful description of these, these people that were actually opposed to each other and yet are finding commonality. And so you look at some of these statements like barbarian. You think that was a compliment? No, it wasn't a compliment in our culture. It's not a compliment back then either. Then you have the Scythians. They were a sort of modern part Ukraine today. And they were sort of an extreme example of what would have been called a barbarian. Uh, the historian Josephus wrote this about them. He said, Now as the Scythians, they take pleasure in killing men and differ little from brute beasts. That was the culture they were known for. But Paul says, there are no categories now. All the barriers to God have been broken. All the ways of acceptance to God have been broken. And these groups that normally would have nothing to do with each other are now part of the new humanity. They're kingdom citizens with Jesus as king. And Paul is saying, you know what? You may have all these prejudices. You may have all these assumptions. When you gather with all these people, you might see them in this community. You might see as a Jewish person, a Gentile, oh, they're evil, they're wicked. You might see a Scythian as evil, wicked. You might see someone who's uncircumcised as a barbarian, evil, wicked. But Paul says, no. They're in Christ. There's a new identity. And when Paul says someone's in Christ, the, the beautiful thing he's implying then is whenever we look at that person, and N.T. Wright writes a lot about this, it's beautiful. Whenever we talk about someone as in Christ, it means when we look at them, we should be reminded that when we look at this person, we see Christ. We literally see Christ. Why? Because it's not, not how God sees them. And so this new humanity, this new culture, this new identity which God has given us now gives us this beautiful opportunity as a community to completely see each other differently and showing each other this love and respect and honor towards one another. The gospel transforms everything. And so viewing our view of others. Now, let me close by saying this. This could have been a four-hour sermon, but I'm trying to compartmentalize a little bit. There's a lot here. But I want us just to close by, by thinking of this reality. We open by thinking of two different communities. And it was obvious the one of which we all desire to live in. But, but now I want us to think of another sense. Well, what if we think about two different churches even? 
a church that defines the attributes that Paul describes in verses 12 to 19 or 17 or the attributes of evil and wicked of 5 to 9. And the wild thing when we think about it is that because we are in Christ, not only do we get a glimpse of the fullness of this community, but there is a certainty for us that one day we'll experience it for all of eternity. Amen? That God is making all things new. And because we are in Christ, that hope of that community is not in vain. And we get to live out the glimpse of it. So let me close with a thought by, by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he was a man who was lived in Nazi Germany, opposed Nazi Germany, and he wrote one of the most fascinating books on Christian community. And this is what he writes. He writes, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it is a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. Amen? And what he means by this is we relate to each other, we relate to ourselves through Jesus Christ. I have Christ in me, and if you are a follower of Jesus, you have Christ in you which gives you the power to change, which gives us the power as a community to be what we long for. But it's only in Christ. Our entire relationship is permeated in Christ. And so church, if we are in Christ, that means for us our relationships become transformed by grace and love and forgiveness. Do we not want to be part of a church like that? Do we not want to be that church? That's what we're created to be. That's where identity is held. We have a calling to live it out. And so let me call up the worship team as we close in prayer. Please bow with me. Gracious Father, we, we share our hearts with Paul at times where he says, Lord, I know what I ought to do. But he knew that in his own strength and in his own power, he didn't have the ability to carry it out. And Lord, so often we too feel like that, where we desire change, we want to be transformed. We want to be the people that you have created us to be. We want to be loving and merciful and gracious and forgiving. And yet, Lord, we know the sin that so easily keeps us from that. And so we pray that as we struggle through this life and being the people that we would want to be, that first and foremost, that we'd be reminded that our identity is the source of that power that we are in Christ. And that as we experience your love, 
and your mercy and your grace. And as we grow in our knowledge of who you are and as we grow in our experiences of your forgiveness and salvation, Lord, that it does transform. It does change. And when we pursue you and we love you above all other things, Lord, that is where the power of transformation comes. And so we pray that you would be working on our hearts, that you'd be working on our minds, that you'd be working on our desires, that you'd be working on our view of self, that we'd be working on our view of others so that we can experience a taste of the kingdom of God, a taste of the perfect world that we long for, a taste where your characteristics and your attributes reign. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us to eradicate any sin in our lives, any evil, any injustice that comes from our own selfish desires, and that we would be a people who are beloved by you, who are holy in your eyes, who are righteous, and who live out those identities so that you can be glorified and so that we can experience the good you have for us and the good that you desire for others through us. We thank you, Jesus, that you make this possible and that you give us the power to accomplish these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to